Thank you for listening to this week's podcast from Victory Baptist Church in Hope Mills, North Carolina. I pray that God uses this message to help you worship God, strengthen your relationship, and glorify Him. Without further ado, here is this week's message. All right, and we are live, so good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to our live stream worship service with Victory Baptist Church. Um, before we get into the sermon, I cannot ignore the current state of our nation. Uh, there's so much to be said about the current events and circumstances surrounding the murder of George Floyd um, and our country's response to it. Uh, there's so much to be said that I almost don't know what to say. Therefore, I want to read the statement that was published by the leadership in the Southern Baptist Convention. This statement was co-authored by the Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer and New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary President Jamie Dew and was unanimously signed by all SBC officers, entity heads, and state convention executive directors. So, quote, As a convention of churches committed to the equality and dignity of all people, Southern Baptists grieve the death of George Floyd, who was killed on May 25, 2020, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. While all must grieve, we understand that in the hearts of our fellow citizens of color, incidents like these connect to a long history of unequal justice in our country, going back to the grievous Jim Crow and slavery eras. These images and information we have available to us in this case are horrific and remind us that there is much work to be done to ensure that there is not even a hint of racial inequity in the distribution of justice in our country. We grieve to see examples of misuse of force and call for these issues to be addressed with speed and justice. While we thank God for our law enforcement officers that bravely risk their lives for the sake of others and uphold justice with dignity and integrity, we also lament when some law enforcement officers misuse their authority and bring unnecessary harm on the people they are called to protect. We further grieve with our minority brothers and sisters in the wake of George Floyd's death, pray for his family and friends, and greatly desire to see the misuse of force and any inequitable distributions of justice come to an end. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, the Bible speaks to matters of justice and human dignity. We are taught by Scripture that human beings are distinct among the rest of creation as those beings which bear the divine image from the beginning of life to the end. All human beings, both male and female, all uh, sorry, of all ethnicities, colors, and ages, are sacred beings that God values and loves. <clears throat> Continue the quote. Throughout the law, the prophets, the gospels, and the entire canon of Scripture, murder is condemned and God's people are called to protect the vulnerable. The Bible further condemns injustice and the misuse of authority and force, and in, the, and in the example of Jesus Christ, God's people are called to love others, care for their needs, grieve with them in brokenness, and labor for the well-being of our neighbor. To follow Christ is to follow in these examples he puts before us. Therefore, as a matter of Christian obedience and devotion, followers of Jesus Christ cannot remain silent when our brothers and sisters friends and or people we seek to win for the Christ or seek to win for Christ are mistreated, abused or killed unnecessarily. Therefore we pray for our local, state and national leaders as they seek justice and call on them to act quickly and diligently to ensure that these situations are brought to an end. As a people, Southern Baptists stand ready to help towards that end. May God give us his favor and help strength may God give us his favor, help and strength in that effort. So I'm going to pray before we continue. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning there's so much uh, that weighs heavy on our hearts, Lord. There's so much uh, to be said and so much to be done, Father. But Lord, help us first to come to you, 
to seek your wisdom and to seek your guidance in what to do, Lord, in every situation, but especially right now, Lord. Father, we pray that you will uh, bring your will into all of these situations, Father. We pray that that moving forward, that we can be a people who who uh, who promote racial equity, uh, Father. That that we can show your will and your character to those around us, Father, by by recognizing the image of God in each and every person around us, Lord. Father, we pray that uh, that you will bring justice to. Um, to all of these matters, Lord, that, that you will show your glory in all of it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, so now we'll go ahead and get into our sermon. Uh, you can go ahead and open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to welcome everyone this morning. Um, if you are new to victory, we typically like to walk through books of the Bible, taking them in and absorbing them, absorbing them in their entirety. Currently, we're going through a uh, series of books called um, the Post-Exilic Texts. They're called the Post-Exilic Texts because the Jews were allowed to return back to Jerusalem after they were exiled. Um, we've, we started this series all the way back in January, so if you haven't been keeping up with that, it's a lot for me to try to recap right now. You can go back and catch those podcasts and listen through that. But know that throughout everything that the Jews do uh, during this time, they recognize that whatever they do, they have to do it through dependence in God, or dependence, dependence on God. And so this series is titled Depending on God. Um, last week we started Esther and we did Esther chapter 1. Um, now Esther is a bit of an outlier in the post-exilic texts. Uh, it's a bit of an outlier in all of the books of the Bible because it is the only book of the Bible that never mentions God by name. Uh, we talked a good bit about the historical context of Esther last week, so we won't recap those details here. Uh, like I said, today we're in Esther chapter 2, and it's verses 1 through 23. This sermon is titled, A New Queen. And the main idea here is that God uh, God works behind the scenes, or God is working behind the scenes. Um, and we see that kind of broken down into three areas in this chapter. We see a lonely king, we see a lovely queen, and a loyal Jew. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started with verse 1, Esther 2, chapter 1, or sorry, Esther chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Some time later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. Now, that's a good opportunity for us to quickly recap what happened in chapter 1. We're just going to try to do this real quick. Uh, so the king threw a huge party for six months, and it capped off with a seven-day drunken feast. The queen had her banquet at the same time, probably because there were just too many people to all gather in one place. But for whatever reason, Queen Vashti was hosting the women, and King Ahasuerus was hosting the men. And the king wanted to show off the queen's beauty, so he called for her to come and present herself to, the, to his party. Um, she refused to leave her guests, so the king, to assert his dominance, deposed her and issued a decree that women throughout the land should obey their husbands. Um, now, after an undisclosed amount of time, the king's rage has subsided and he misses his wife. Unfortunately, the Persian Empire has a silly rule that not even the king can overturn his own decree. So no matter how much King Ahasuerus misses Vashti, she cannot return to him. But just like before, the king's attendants are there to offer their advice. Now, these are the same advisors who advised his horrible decision earlier, but for some reason, he still listens to them. So we're going to keep reading in verse 2. Uh, the, king's uh, the king's personal attendants suggested, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in each province of his kingdom, so that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem at the fortress of Susa, put them under the supervision of Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, and give them, required beauty, give them the required beauty treatments. Then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. 
This suggestion pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So when we read through this, we see there's only three requirements for uh, a potential new queen, and that, that was they should be beautiful, that they should be young, and they should be a virgin. Now, they were to search for the whole empire, search through the whole empire for women that would meet this criteria. Also, we can guess uh, from ancient tradition that the title of woman here might be a bit euphemistic. Uh, these females could have been as young as 12, um, and marriage was common around the age of 12 to 14 years old. Uh, but again, remember, one of the overarching themes for this book um, is that though people are morally fallen, God can still work through us to accomplish his will. God will work through this process, this process that we're reading about right now. God will work through this process to eventually save his people from a genocidal plot and bring his glory, or bring glory to his name. Now, if we keep reading, we finally get to meet the main characters in this story. So uh, picking up in verse 5. In the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. Kish had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King Jeconiah of Judah into exile. Now, this may not seem like an important detail, but what it tells us is that due to Mordecai's family lineage, he has access to the royal courtyard and might, he might even have a seat in the royal court. Uh, continuing in verse 7. Mordecai was a legal guardian of his cousin Hadassah, that is Esther, because she had no father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his daughter. When the king's command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under Hegai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace, into the supervision of Hegai, keeper of the women. The young woman pleased him and gained his favor so that he accelerated the process of the beauty treatments and the special diet that she received. He assigned seven hand-picked female servants to her from the palace and transferred her from her servant uh, transferred her and her servants to the harem's best quarters. Esther did not reveal her identity or her family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Every day, Mordecai took a walk in front of the harem's courtyard to learn how Esther was doing and see what was happening to her. All right, so now we learned that Esther has uh, gained entry into this royal beauty pageant. Um, she gained, and she gained the favor of the king's servant. We're not told exactly how she gained his favor, uh, but somehow she does. Uh, and that pattern is similar in, um, you look at the story of Joseph, he, uh, he had that similar pattern in his life where he gained the favor of everybody in the king's household. Um, and since he guy prefers Esther, he puts her at the front of the line, therefore uh, decreasing the odds that the king would find a wife before Esther even gets a shot. We also learn that Esther does not reveal her Jewishness. For Esther to hide her ethnicity, she would have had to eat like the Persians and possibly even partake in religious practices that would go against Mosaic law. Uh, this again supports the theme from earlier that God can use us to achieve his will even through our immor uh, immorality. Now, if we keep reading, the narrative is interrupted to give an explanation of the preparation that the women would go through right before their night with the king. So we're going to keep reading, picking up in verse 12. It says, During the year before each young woman's turn to go to the king, Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil of myrrh for six months and then with perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. When the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem to the palace. She would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to the second harem, under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Sheashkenaz, keeper of the concubines. She never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. Now, 
This text indicates that it uh, involved two separate six-month treatments, which included, included skin treatments and elaborate, an elaborate perfume process. Uh, the extravagance of this process fits with the overall extravagance of the king that we saw in chapter 1. Now, it's clear from this text that this visit was a sexual act. Each woman visits the king in the evening, and in the morning, she's leave. She's, uh, she leaves. Um, after her visit with the king, she transitions from the group of virgins to go to the group of concubines, and would only see the king again if he asked her for her specifically. And though they lived a life of luxury, it seems that concubines in the Persian Empire were treated more like property rather than actual people. Um, they were treated as property of the king, primarily viewed as sexual partners with no legal rights. All right, so we keep reading, uh, picking up in verse 15. It says, Esther was the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter. When her turn came to the king, when her turn when her turn came to go to the king, she did not ask for anything except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, keeper of the women, suggested. Esther gained favor, favor in the eyes of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Ahasuerus in the palace in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed his provinces from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of the king's bounty. So verse 16 tells us that these events happen about four years after Queen Vashti was deposed. Now, historical sources outside of the Bible tell us that during this time, was the, the, uh, Persia was at war with Greece, uh, and even the, the events that, mo that were memorialized in the movie 300 probably happened during that time. Uh, typically, the king was only allowed to choose a wife from one of the seven prestigious families. But the king's divided attention between the war and choosing a new wife, the king's divided attention could possibly explain how Esther was able to kind of sidestep that, that legal requirement. Um, as those who believe, sorry, as those who believe in God's governance, we recognize that this is no mere coincidence or mistake by the king. It is the true king working behind the scenes to accomplish his will. Esther was not mistakenly placed as the queen uh, because the king overlooked some detail. This is the true king working behind the scenes and working in the details to make his will come to be. Uh, if you remember, that's the main overarching theme of the book of Esther. Even though you may not see God right away or hear him speaking audibly, he is always working behind the scenes. What we perceive as coincidences or ironic twists are actually God working his will into our lives. So let's go ahead and finish the chapter. Picking up in verse 19, it says, When the virgins were gathered a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther still, not, still did not reveal her, her family background or her ethnicity as Mordecai had directed. She obeyed Mordecai's orders as she always had while he raised her. During those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigtha, Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance became infuriated and planned to assassinate the king, uh, planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. When Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record of the king's presence. So there are a few questions that this text raises and doesn't quite answer. Doesn't, it doesn't really answer it for us. We're left to ponder what that answer might be. So the first question, if Esther had already been chosen queen, why were the virgins being gathered again? Or why was Esther even hanging out with the virgins? Why was 
Mordecai just chilling there by the entrance. That kind of, it sounds kind of pervy. Um, why were the king's eunuchs so infuriated with the king? Or why? Uh, we don't really know the reason for all these, but we can only guess at a couple of them. So Esther and Mordecai were there so that they could see each other. Remember, Mordecai is Esther's adopted father. And so as her dad, he would step in and, and continue to give her advice. Uh, the other questions, I, I don't really have a, a solid answer other than uh, the only expl- explanation that I can give is that God is using these events to, sorry, that God is using these events to place Mordecai and Esther in the king's favor so they can use that position of power uh, to later save the Jews. All right, so we finished the text. And so what application do we get out of this? I know last week I didn't give you guys an application. Uh, this week we will get that application. Our application always comes from our definition of a disciple. Um, and that, that comes from Matthew 4.19, where Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fish for people. So our definition of a disciple contains um, three indicators of a disciple. And that's knowing, being, and doing. So first is to know. Know that God is in control. Throughout the book of Esther, we are shown that God often works behind the scenes in ways that are not often obvious. Also, throughout the book of Esther, we are shown that God can use sinful people like us to bring justice to his people and glory to his name. When we look at our nation right now, we see that there is a lot of pain and anger. We as a people need to pray that God will work in these situations to bring healing, justice, and protection from those who wish to do harm on the innocent or abuse their power. Our second application point, the being part, is to be hopeful. Last week, I said that the third major theme of the book of Esther was hope. Uh, There are times when things look really bad and we struggle to find hope in our lives. We look on the news, we look on social media, or even in our own lives, and we see little sign of hope. But we know that God is in control and that he is working behind the scenes so we can have hope. We can have hope because even though our nation shows signs of brokenness or our world shows signs of brokenness, our communities show signs of brokenness and our own lives show signs of brokenness, we can have hope because we know that our hope does not rest in these things. That brokenness around us points to our need for the gospel. The brokenness is a result of sin. This is why, sorry, this is not the way that God designed our world to work. Brokenness is a result of sin. This is not how God designed the world to work. Unfortunately, there's no way that we can fix this brokenness on our own. Many people have realized this and have lost hope. But Jesus came and died on the cross to save us from our sins and to give us hope. Jesus came to die on the cross and to reconcile our relationship with the Father and to reconcile our relationships with each other. He is our only hope to fix this brokenness. Our hope is in the gospel and in Jesus' future return. Uh, And our final application point to do, that's uh, pray that God will work in our nation. Now, this may seem like a stretch from this text, but think about it. The Jews were living under the rule of a secular, drunk, wicked, predatorial king. But he acted, but God acted through this king and through their faithful actions to protect his people. We can pray that God will work in the same way now. Our government is not as sinful as the Persian government, but it is imperfect. We need to pray that God will work in our nation to bring a resolution to the current events and in the future to bring glory to his name. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, we come to you humbly recognizing our sinfulness. We come to you recognizing your glory and your power and your righteousness, God. Father, we ask that you will step into our nation, that you will reach down and and touch our hearts, Lord. Help us to to reach out and, and in love, God, uh, reach out to, um, to help each other, Lord. 
Help us, God, to, to love each other and to have our hearts broken when we see others sinned against, Lord. But also, Father, give us wisdom uh, as we, we um, continue in these days, Lord. These are definitely uh, some uncertain times, but God, I just pray, Lord, that you will give us our hope in you. Help us to place our hope in you and to rest in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you again for listening to this week's message. If you would like to know more information about our church, please visit VictoryBaptistHopeMills.com or Facebook.com slash VBCHopeMills. I would also like to ask that you rate and review this podcast. And if you found this sermon helpful, please share it.